Can you be the most reasonable and effective manager of the most ridiculous hospital in the world? Well, let's find out with Theme Hospital this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 57 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I am back once again, as I always am, to discuss a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP era with you. So we're here. It's, uh, I think, is it's not officially the first day of fall, but it's it's shortly after the first day of fall or autumn, if you will. And uh, it's a nice day out, and it's, it's surprisingly warm. So hopefully I'll be able to get out for a run or a bike ride or something uh, later before the winter arrives and the snow comes. Of course, because I'm dumb, uh, my wife and I decided to uh, register for a a half marathon October 26th in Niagara Falls. And um, yeah, so we basically have exactly a month to rev up for uh, from running, you know, five kilometers at a time the whole summer while we were training for... uh, for the triathlon up to running 21 kilometers or 13.1 miles. So uh, that should be fun. <laughs> so I probably should get this podcast out of the way because uh, I'm going to be running for the next 30 days. Uh, but aside from that, uh, as always, you know, thank, thanks guys for tuning in and thanks to any new people. I know new people are discovering the podcast all the time and I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because the weather is good, but the past couple of weeks I've been super, super excited about, uh, about the podcast, even more than, than usual, you know, and uh, I don't think it has anything to do with me. I think, frankly, uh, this has to do with you guys and uh, the fact that, you know, we have a lot of interaction back and forth. And you guys are always sending me questions, posting news stories and, and stuff like that. So I just wanted to say right off the bat, I don't know why I'm feeling this way today. It's kind of a little sentimental start to uh, episode 57. But uh, thanks for listening. And uh, I've been doing some, you know, artsy projects on the side relating to the show, which some of you might have seen uh, if you follow on Facebook and Twitter. And stuff. So a couple of things in the works with with regard to the show, and uh, you know, keep uh, keep your eyes open on on all the social media outlets, and uh, might have a couple of little announcements or one or two announcements uh, soon enough with regard to uh, the show and the future of the show and what I want to do with the show going forward. So uh, yeah, that's that. All that stuff aside, whatever you know, just enjoy. You guys are enjoying the show, so let's let's just do what we do. So we're back to a, a little bit of news. Before the, the actual news, I have not exactly a correction from uh, the Indy 500 episode, but more something that I wanted to stress. Um, so in the last show, episode 56 on Indianapolis 500, the simulation, I mentioned something sort of in passing, and I think it needs to be stressed a bit more. So I did say that, you know, the, the graphical engine in Indy 500, uh, basically when it was in development, the developer whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head right now, kind of figured out that uh, that computers at the time could only really display 30 polygons at once. And they were able to do, and he was able to kind of have that happen and make, you know, the, the Grand Prix circuit still look like the Grand Prix and the other cars still look like other cars and all of that. And what I didn't mention and that I need, the thing that I need to mention, because this is actually kind of a very important technical 
point on Indy 500 is that the game engine, the graphical engine itself, actually would adjust the number of polygons, you know, the the detail of different elements on the screen, be it other cars, depending on how far away they were, or the scenery, or anything like that. It would adjust on the fly to keep that number at or below 30 polygons. And, you know, for the time, this is like 1989, if I remember right, and that, that was incredible. So you have this, this graphics engine that's rendering things super fast, the action's happening super fast, the math is all happening super fast, and in addition to that... The graphical, the graphical engine is adjusting the complexity of the on-screen models on the fly. So that that's really important. And I know two people, uh, at least two people, including uh, my buddy Anatoly Dos Nostalgic on Twitter, pointed that out to me, and and I realized, well, I did know that. I I realized I didn't really say it. So that's a very important point about Indy Five Hundred is that things were you know, happening on the fly and, and, and really, really, it was really effective at managing performance that way. So just a little correction. Uh, and aside from that, let's, let's roll into the news. So for our first news story, so I've, I've never been into huge into sports games myself, but I definitely know about, you know, the front page sports series that was kind of put out by Sierra in in its later years. Uh, Well, it looks like a company called Cyanide Studios is uh, is reviving front page sports football. Uh, It's scheduled for release in the fall, which which frankly is right now. So uh, I'll keep an eye out for a final release date. They're going to have all these aspects of, you know, kind of managing your teams and trading and, and blah, blah, blah. And I I'm, I, I'm not sure because, again, I don't know much about front page sports football. If there is uh, an actual football game in there or if it's just a management simulation. So uh, sorry, guys, I'm not an expert on everything. But, uh, you know, once I find out a release date and all that, maybe. And despite the fact that I don't really like them, I probably should cover a sports game <laughs> at some point. So maybe front page sports football will be uh, one to put on the short list. Next, we've got some Commander Keen news, and that is that Commander Keen has been open source. So the source code for Commander Keen in Keen Dreams uh, has been made available via GitHub. Uh, apparently, this is due to a crowdfunding effort, so I'm not sure if they um, raised whatever money uh, id was uh, was asking to, uh, to release the source code or something like that. So uh, if you read... The GitHub page, the kind of the legalities there with regard to licensing are a little bit confusing. My understanding from a quick uh, glance at it is that the the engine code, kind of the code that manages events and gameplay and stuff like that, that's the thing that's open sourced. But technically, the art assets of the game are uh, are still copyright uh, id. But apparently you can download them for kind of reference purposes. Uh, this open source licensing stuff, it's also a little bit part of my my day job. And I still find it quite confusing. Uh, anyways, if you want to see how Carmack coded up Commander Keen, uh, now you can. And uh, yeah, check it out on, on GitHub. You can download it from there. If, if you have a, a Git client, you can do the little, you know, get the repository and, and, and get versions or get the latest version or whatever. Or you could just go to GitHub and download it manually if you're not a, a programmer type guy. Next, we have some Elite Dangerous news. So the second beta is out for this epic space trucker game uh, remake. Uh, I'm incredibly tempted 
to buy into the beta of this, but the release is coming pretty soon, so maybe I'll just wait until then to review it and, and give my opinion. So if you guys have been playing it, drop me a line. Let me know what you think about Elite Dangerous. Uh, I hear this is a really big beta release. Uh, a lot of a lot of a lot more gameplay systems are in place, and um, I've only been hearing good things about it. And frankly, I've been hearing better things about it than I've been hearing and experiencing uh, in Star Citizen, which has been you know seeing delays and this and that. They're kind of like the two competing uh, space sim revival games uh, that are that are going on right now. They're both very big names, and I know there's um, there's a games conference in London called like EAX or something like that. Uh, and I know the elite guys are there with a, with a big booth. I imagine cloud Imperium is there with star citizen as well. So, uh, I'm sure we'll get some news from there pretty soon, but, uh, that's that. And finally, uh, we've got some blizzard news Now this isn't really retro, but Hey, I like blizzard and I covered Warcraft and all that. And who doesn't know about blizzard? So, uh, news in their camp is that they have killed their uh, long rumored project Titan after seven years in development. Uh, a little bit of uh, information has been released about it. It seems like uh, it was a sort of MMO FPS, where by day you had kind of this menial job, which was your profession, and uh, at night you basically become uh, kind of a futuristic superhero. Uh, Mike Morheim, I believe he's the president of, C- of uh, Blizzard or the CEO or whatever. Uh, anyways, he said they killed the project because uh, the team and management on that team concluded that uh, the game just wasn't as fun as they wanted it to be, and... Frankly, I'm not very upset. Blizzard has a history of doing this in the past. They canceled StarCraft Ghost when I think there was actually even a game <laughs> there and they had like a, a advertising ready to go and it was very far along and they killed it because according to them, it wasn't fun. And so this one wasn't fun. So you know what? I, I trust Blizzard to tell me what they think is a fun game and what isn't because hey, their track record is quite successful. So, you know, good on them. I know it's hard to kind of say, well, we sunk all this time and all this money and all these jobs and everything into this. And, uh, you know, we're going to see it through whether it's good or not. But, uh, you know, the team's not breaking up that the team that was working on Titan is still together. And uh, I'm sure they're going to be working on uh, on something interesting that we are we, that we will all be very excited to talk about soon. You're listening to the Upper All right, so before we get to the main topic, we've got one little email to read from Eddie. And Eddie writes, nice one-liner. Hey, Joe, didn't know if you had seen this Lego set being proposed uh, on the Lego website, but they need 10,000 signatures. And he links here to, uh, there's a Monkey Island Lego set, which basically reproduces the scum bar. And I know this set has, I may even have mentioned this set before. And at first I kind of glanced at it and I said, oh yeah, I've seen this before. It was kind of this cruddy little Lego set that had some custom characters in it and whatever to recreate that interior scene from the scum bar with, you know, all the pirates hanging around, the ask me about loom guy and, uh, you know, the three senior pirates that say grog. But uh, looking at it more closely, either I didn't look at it good the first time or they really improved it a lot. Now it's like basically the entire scum bar building that opens up and you have the main area the senior pirates area and the uh the uh the kitchen and and the little dock outside the kitchen that uh, take place in the game and and it looks pretty pretty damned good i must say so uh you know if you guys want to see this happen head to ideas.lego.com slash projects that's slash 72407 slash or slash updates you don't need to see that but um 
vote for it. If it gets 10,000 votes, hey, we may see it and we may get some, uh, some cool Monkey Island Lego. Thanks for letting me know about that one, Eddie. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, time for the main event. So today, I want to discuss a great game called Theme Hospital. Now, this is a standalone game that was developed by our friends at Bullfrog Productions and published by our former friends and now kind of strained friends at Electronic Arts. Uh, all this stuff took place in the venerable year of 1997, which is the year before the year that I graduated from high school. So since we broke ground last week with a new genre, uh, I decided to head back to one we've talked about in the past, a business simulation. So a business simulation uh, can also be known as an economic sim- simulation or more casually as a tycoon game. It's possibly named after Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon, which we covered on our show a long while back and was kind of like the first of these, etc. So these games, as you may well guess, place the player into the role of a manager or an administrator. Your goal is to successfully manage or administer whatever process you're put in charge of. Uh, This can be the running and development of different aspects of a business, uh, which may involve things like allocating resources to things like customer service, production, research and development, facilities, marketing, and all kinds of other stuff like that. Uh, The scale of a business simulation can also vary wildly, ranging from the running of a single small business like a lemonade stand or something like that to a single large institution all the way to a world-spanning conglomerate with multiple locations and factories and offices and distribution centers across the globe. Uh, Goals can be short-term or long-term, but generally involve the creation of a strong and viable business. So that's that. Pretty straightforward. Let's talk Theme Hospital. Okay, story time. So, like other simulations we've discussed, uh, there isn't a ton of story here. Uh, What there is, however, is quite a bit of framing and effort put into the world. The game's intro does a little bit of this framing. Uh, We start off flying through a 3D hospital waiting room. Uh, The first person we see waiting with what appears to be a headache is a strangely familiar demon-looking creature. We also see an under-the-weather android wearing a long, dark trench coat and hat. Now, for those who aren't into uh, the bullfrog inside baseball talk, that demon is from Dungeon Keeper, and the trench-coated android is an agent from Syndicate. So, looks to me like this game is going to be a little bit self-referential and might not take itself kind of uh, too seriously. We might be breaking a little bit of the fourth wall here. Now, a news report plays on the TV in the waiting room, and something's up. We then cut to a doctor playing Dungeon Keeper in, uh, in the staff room. He heroically gets up, rips open his shirt, and reveals a Superman-like doctor-logoed undershirt. Uh, he then runs and boards a helicopter. We then cut to an operating room where our superhero doctor is operating on a patient. He pulls out a chainsaw. And's about to make what uh, I'm sure will be a very precise and uh, neat incision when the computer in the operating room sounds a medical alert. Apparently, this patient has bad credit. A trapdoor opens, and uh, the unconscious patient is dumped down a chute. So if you were expecting a careful, studied, and realistic simulation of being a large hospital administrator, I think you've got the wrong 
game. There's a, there's a little bit more of kind of framing and stuff like that in, in the game manual. And there's also some, uh, some interesting fiction where, uh, kind of, a a, a man from the ministry of health, I guess we'll put it, uh, goes to inspect a hospital and, and it's all very comical. So, uh, you know, the manual comes with the GOG version, which I'll talk about later. Uh, if you want to go in and, and read that stuff, it's a little bit funny. So, uh, you know, just more evidence that this isn't going to be, you know, as I said, a, a serious and studied simulation. This is this is going to be a fun game. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, gameplay time. In addition to the interesting and silly world, uh, we've got some interesting and silly gameplay. Our main goal in Theme Hospital is to attract as many patients to our hospital as we can, and then to heal them and take their money as quickly as possible. How do you do this? Well, it all really boils down to two elements, building appropriate rooms and hiring the staff to leverage those rooms. So when the game begins, you're presented with uh, an empty shell of a hospital. Now, in the first level, we have a fairly large single open space with kind of two side wings, so it kind of looks like a big cross. Uh, As you proceed through the game, however, this won't always be the case. You'll end up having to purchase additional nearby buildings to further expand your hospital, but we don't have to worry about that right now. It's level one. Uh, So to begin, we need some critical elements to make our hospital even remotely viable. Now, the first thing we need is a reception desk. This is considered a corridor item. I'm making air quotes with my fingers because it's a corridor item. (laughs) Corridor items are general purpose items which uh, you can place anywhere in your hospital. Aside from the reception desk, uh, these types of items generally serve to increase the overall comfort level of your hospital and kind of upgrade it to kind of a slightly fancier facility than you otherwise have. Corridor items include include things like uh, benches, for your patients to sit on while they await treatment, radiators to heat your hospital, trash cans, plants, uh, drink machines, other fun stuff like that. So by placing a reception desk, your patients will now have somewhere to check in when they arrive. However, there isn't anyone to greet them. This isn't an automated hospital. So this is where staffing comes in. Your reception desk requires, obviously, a receptionist. So popping into the higher staff interface, uh, we can see who we have available to us. So staff are split into four separate categories or four separate roles. We have doctors, nurses, receptionists, and handymen. Now, except for doctors, which we'll get into a little later, all staff are graded simply on their ability to do their jobs. Ability level is kind of, it's, it's kind of a not, a, not a progress bar, but you know, it's a bar with a percentage of it filled. And uh, this level is directly proportional to their requested wage. So a receptionist with a high ability level will direct patients to diagnosis rooms very quickly and efficiently, whereas one with a low ability level will do it much more slowly. Of course, the better one will cost proportionately more. So where does our receptionist send our new patients? Well, that's where the diagnosis rooms come in. This is where the medical stuff begins. There's two types of of pure diagnosis rooms, the first of which is the general practitioner's office. Now, this is the first room all your patients visit where any of your doctors, regardless of how good they are, bad they are, what specialties they have, uh, will sit with them in kind of a more office setting. This is just a desk and a chair kind of a thing to do an initial diagnosis of their condition. Now, each room in the game 
has a certain set of requirements uh, to be considered functional. Now, for the GP's office, we need to make a room with a minimum size of 4x4 map tiles. Inside, it requires to have a desk, a filing cabinet, and a patient chair. Now, as I just mentioned, it also requires a doctor to staff it. Since there isn't any machinery in this room, just kind of, you know, normal static things, there's no need for a maintenance guy unless you start getting fancy and placing, like, plants or anything like that in the room. Then the maintenance man would have to come in and, and maintain those plants, water them, etc. Now, each room also has a sort of logical flow of events for both the doctor and the patient while they're in there. Now, in the GP's office, the doctor will move from the filing cabinet to the desk and back and forth kind of that way, and the patient will enter, sit in the chair, and then exit. While placement of items in the room isn't of dire importance, facilitating movement in the room certainly can speed things along. So if you put kind of the filing cabinet and the desk across the room from each other instead of nearby, the doctor's going to have to do his thing, walk across the room. If the chair's in the middle of that, he's going to have to go around it, and him and the patient will get in the way of each other. So, you know, if you want your hospital to flow efficiently, it's smart to think about how you're placing these elements in the room in relation to the flow of events that happen in that room. Also, when you're defining the size of any room, there's some elements to take into account. Aside from the fact that each room has a minimum size, you actually can't make a room that's too small for the type of room that uh, you want to make. Staff also like to work in larger rooms. So if a GP's office has to be four by four, that's fine. It'll do. But you're not going to have the happiest general practitioner in the world. If you make it bigger, it makes your staff feel more comfortable and perhaps even a bit more important, uh, especially the doctors. You can also place windows in each room. The more windows, perhaps to a maximum, I'm not 100% sure, uh, the happier the staff and patients will be. So it's a little bit of a, a, a mini game to make the biggest rooms possible while still fitting everything into your available hospital space. So you have a GP office, general practitioner. Uh, so now the patients will come here first, no matter what is wrong with them. You can have as many of these rooms as you see fit. In fact, you can have as many of any room as you see fit. You can even have like 17 reception desks if you want. Uh, since everyone comes to these GP offices, this is a potential bottleneck. Once patients sit with the doctor, the diagnosis begins. Now, if what they have is simple and readily apparent, they get sent off for treatment. If it isn't, they're sent out of the office to wait for further diagnosis. Now, further diagnosis happens in more advanced diagnosis rooms, such as the general diagnosis room, the cardiogram, the scanner, the ultrascan, the blood machine, and the x-ray. Of course, rooms and equipment in them get progressively more expensive. However, the more diagnosis a patient goes through, the more they will pay. Also, once you start building rooms with equipment, as I said, uh, with the plants and stuff, they need maintenance. Otherwise, eh, bad things can happen. Letting a plant die, not the end of the world. Having a bad cardiogram or an x-ray that's leaking radiation, well, let's just say some bad things can happen to your patients if... Uh, if you don't maintain these uh, these items. This is the job of your handymen. Well, this is their job in addition to cleaning the hospital, taking out the garbage, watering the plants, and all these other things, so make sure you have enough of them. The janitors are always the uh, the unsung heroes of any facility, so and I, I like the fact that these, uh, these bullfrog games take that into account. Now, if you don't have appropriate facilities to diagnose a patient, they'll wait around a while, but eventually they will leave an annoyance. Either that or you can send them home. There's one more thing you can do with them, but we'll chat about that a little later once we start talking about the research department. 
The next step in the process is to treat. Now there's four general treatment room types. Firstly, we have the pharmacy. So if a condition can be cured with simple medication, the patient is sent to get their pills from here. A pharmacy is staffed by a nurse and requires a pharmacy cabinet. Next, we have a psychiatric room. This room is used to cure what are known in the game as diseases of the mind, which they basically explain in this world as meaning that a psychiatrist will talk you out of being sick. That's kind of a simplification, but you know what? This game's meant to be funny, so we don't want to do a deep uh, deep dive into uh, into all the aspects of mental illness and stuff in, in, in the game. Next, we have the operating theater. Now, this room requires two surgeons to function. So this is the first, and I'm not sure if it's the only, but it's one of the few rooms, if there's more than one, that needs two people to, to make it function. Of course, this is where issues requiring uh, surgical intervention, let's say, are resolved. Nearby to the operating theater, we should also find a ward. The ward is where patients recover from surgery, and the ward requires a nurse. Now, the ward and the psychiatric room are not only treatment rooms, they can also double as diagnosis rooms in some cases. So now you'll notice that uh, in explaining these rooms, I mentioned things like psychiatrists and surgeons. Now, these are types of doctors, obviously. When you hire doctors, there's a little bit more complexity than hiring your other staff. Doctors do have this same ability level range like other positions do. However, they also have specializations. So you can have a doctor that is not specialized, which means they can kind of do all the general stuff, or they can be specialized as a psychiatrist, a surgeon, or a researcher. Now, doctors also have a level of seniority, which determines the speed at which they can turn over patients. And uh, at the highest level of consultant, they can train more junior doctors, provided you've built a training room for them to do that in, and there's enough free time for them to do so. Now, for some specific conditions, you can build specialized clinics. Now, this is where a lot of the humor of the game really comes in. You could build clinics to treat such life-threatening conditions as bloaty head, baldness, hairyitis, which is really just uh, uncontrollable hair growth, and the, the uh, solution for that is an electrolysis room, <laughs> jellyitis, a lot more stuff like that. Uh, people with these conditions are very noticeable. And the treatments for these conditions are even more noticeable. For example, the first, uh, the first condition you come across in the first level is bloaty head. Now, people suffering from bloaty head uh, come in with massive inflated heads. The treatment in uh, an inflation room is to pop their head like a balloon and reinflate it to the proper size. Uh, each clinic room requires a doctor to run it. Now, when I say that, what I mean is you don't necessarily need... So if you have, you know, two GP rooms, uh, a general diagnosis room, a surgery room, a psychology room, and, uh, you know, two clinics, that doesn't mean you need like eight doctors. It just means you need enough doctors to man those rooms when they're needed. If you have a doctor per room in a larger hospital, you're going to have a lot of doctors sitting idle and you're going to waste a lot of money. So you kind of have to strike this balance of having all the facilities you need, knowing how many people are coming in at any given time and having staff appropriate for that load of patients, kind of like in real life. Now, finally, I hinted at this earlier, you can and must build research labs to develop new treatments. Uh, you also use them to improve existing treatments and gain access to new rooms and technologies. Now, each research department requires at least one researcher and um, 
Each research department, depending on how big you make it, can contain multiple research desks, which, um, you know, if you assign one researcher to each desk, it'll increase your rate of research, blah, blah, blah. Now, there's also something in the research department called an auto-autopsy. Now, I hinted at this before. If you send an ailing patient, you know, someone who you haven't been able to diagnose or whatever, to the research department, they will willingly get into the auto-autopsy machine and, well, it will autopsy them. And, of course, to autopsy them, they will have to be killed. So it's basically a suicide booth if you've seen the first episode of, uh, of Futurama. Now, I think this is supposed to speed your research of whatever condition these people have, but I don't really have any like numerical proof that this is the case. What usually happens if your auto-autopsy machine is discovered is uh, that your the reputation level of your hospital takes a hit because people realize what you're doing. <laughs> Now, there's tons of other stuff to talk about here. Uh, you can build staff rooms for your staff to rest in. There's emergencies and epidemics to manage for bonus money. Uh, inspections from the Ministry of Health come by. There's VIPs that visit that also kind of offer money incentives and things like that. Uh, you have to build toilets for people to go to the bathroom in. You have to get them cleaned. You actually get to watch people go into the bathroom and straining. It's kind of funny. Um you have to place drinks machines. People complain if the heat is set too low. Lots of stuff. There's a lot of stuff involved in this game and in this simulation. It's quite it's it's quite a bit more detailed than uh, kind of the funny, cute undertones of it uh, imply. Now, eventually, you'll succeed in meeting the requirements of the scenario that you're currently in. Uh, it me it's measured by things like hospital quality rating to number of patients healed to, you know, number of staff, all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, at that point, you'll be offered a different position from the ministry. Now you have the choice of continuing on in your current hospital or moving on to the next one. And uh, moving on to the next one brings you to a new facility in a different location with a different setup and a different layout and uh, different rate of pay and all that stuff. In addition to all the single player stuff, a multiplayer option was patched into the game shortly after release. Uh, which allows up to four players to compete against each other to kind of build the best hospital. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. So we're in 1997. So this is getting us into the land of 486s and Pantiums. So to run Theme Hospital, you need at least a 486 DX2 66 megahertz, which I had. That was an awesome computer that I have very fond memories of uh, to this day. It also required at least eight megs of RAM, 20 megs of hard drive space, and at least DOS 6.2, since it appears that even in uh, 1997, they still released a DOS-only version of this game. Uh, it also ran on Windows 95. Graphically, we've arrived at 640 by 480 SVGA 
at 256 colors, and I think it shows. While the game doesn't have the sharpest or most realistic graphics in the world, it certainly does have a very interesting style to it. Engine-wise, uh, Theme Hospital sort of was built off of the Theme Park code base. Uh, how much of this code still existed at the end of the project, we'll see a little bit in Dev Story. But, uh, you know, while the games are quite different on the surface, a lot of the underlying mechanics, at least in theory, are quite similar. Now, finally, I want to chat about the game's music. Now, the music in Theme Hospital was mainly composed by Russell Shaw, who we've, uh, who we've discussed before in the other Bullfrog uh, episodes. So Shaw arrived at Bullfrog via work with uh, TV producer Jerry Anderson, and then, you know, developing music for the London club scene, things like that. So in 1992, he applied for work at Bullfrog and uh, composed soundtracks for a lot of their games, including Syndicate and uh, Theme Park, and eventually kind of semi-simultaneously Dungeon Keeper and Theme Hospital. So while I believe he did do the bulk of the actual music composing work, he did work alongside other sound designers, including Tony Cox, who also took on a composer role, and Adrian Moore, who uh, had just been hired at the time and did a lot more of kind of the sound effects work at a more junior uh, level. Eventually, this whole sound team would move on to Lionhead, along with uh, Peter Molyneux himself when he founds that company. Uh, however, while working on this game, they put out a very fun, very lively, and kind of very tone and setting appropriate soundtrack that I think is just great. Alright, dev story time. So, Theme Hospital is a bullfrog game, which usually in the history of the Upper Memory Block podcast means it's a game by Peter Molyneux. However, at this time in Bullfrog's life cycle, things weren't quite quite as uh, as clean cut as they were in the earlier days, which I covered in episodes on like Populous and Syndicate, and even in Dungeon Keeper, which comes out around the same time. So at the time, Bullfrog had quite a few projects running. Uh, Syndicate Wars was in development, uh, as was the big guy, Dungeon Keeper. Obviously, Molyneux's attention was focused primarily on that game, because Dungeon Keeper was sort of his, his baby at this point in time. So how did Theme Hospital come to fruition? Well, Mark Webley, one of the uh, main developers on the uh, on the project, and Andy Bass, who was uh, worked on art, describe it sort of like this. You know, they say back in 1994, Webley had worked on a coder uh, as a coder on Theme Park, and uh, that game had the subtitle of Bullfrog Designer Series. Now, they weren't really sure where this was going to go, but it basically gave the company kind of a, an opening to start a series of business simulation games if Theme Park was successful. Well, guess what? Theme Park was successful. <laughs> so another game in the so-called designer series was put on the schedule 
without very much detail. It was kind of like, you know, sequel to theme park. So again, this is all purely anecdotal, though I kind of guess most of my dev stories are basically anecdotal because, you know, there isn't like a a generally accepted uh, historical record of uh, DOS ga- the DOS gaming industry. But uh, the way that uh, the, the theme of Theme Hospital was decided on was apparently very simple. Uh, Peter Molyneux was in an interview and off the top of his head, he kind of said that the sequel to Theme Park would be a game about managing a hospital. Boom. Game decision made. I guess we're making a game about a hospital. And now the fun part came. Since, as I said, Webley had worked on Theme Park, uh, that code base seemed like a pretty reasonable place to start. So they took it and started figuring out how to make a hospital simulator out of it. To do this, they started touring hospitals around you know, the, the, the area in the UK, uh, including a very in-depth visit to uh, Frimley Park Hospital, which, if I understand correctly, UK uh, listeners, please correct me, is a fairly major hospital in, uh, in the south of England. Uh, they also repeatedly wandered around the Royal Surrey Hospital as it was nearby their office in, uh, in Guildford. However, even from the start, this project was not really given a ton of either resources or enthusiasm from within the greater bullfrog community, let's say. Uh, From an internal perspective, Webley describes the game as not incredibly appealing. Now, the hot thing in 1995, 1996, 1997 was 3D. Hey, 3D is awesome. You know, they had Magic Carpet that came out and they're trying to build things on the Magic Carpet engine. Syndicate Wars was in production. Dungeon Keeper was 3D. Uh, Theme Hospital was viewed as kind of this somewhat pedestrian, old school, two-dimensional business simulation project. While the team assigned to it was exciting, it was difficult to get much enthusiasm from the rest of Bullfrog, let alone electronic arts but they pushed ahead with their planning and came up with an initial idea they were going to build out a game where you simulated running a hospital where you treated real people for real diseases there were bloody operating rooms ambulances rolling in with injured people being rushed into dull and drab you know emergency wards uh the game they were planning it was turning out to not be incredibly visually appealing Why? Well, they were trying to model real hospitals, and real hospitals are somewhat, by definition, a bit sterile and utilitarian environments. Now, this is the point that Gary Carr, who was another developer on the team, came up with an idea. Why did they have to simulate real diseases in real hospitals? Well, let's have some fun with this. So they started spitballing silly and funny diseases along with equally silly mechanisms to cure them. Why give someone cancer when you can turn them into Elvis? So the team had originally planned, after you know they came to the conclusion that they were going to make a funny game, uh, to split the game into four separate time periods, all with different environments, illnesses, and equipment. Uh, it would have gone from medieval to Victorian to the present and then to the future, kind of like you know civilization style, if you will, kind of uh, managing hospitals through the through the ages. Luckily. They decided to begin with the present day, as it turns out that uh, that's all they really had time to do. So despite starting from the theme park code base, it was quickly discovered that while on the surface, they were dealing with a business simulation in the vein of theme park, the existing code wasn't going to do what they needed. So even though I said the game was based on the theme park code base, almost every underlying system in the game was substantially reworked. 
Now, one aesthetic the designers were going for, which was somewhat similar to what they had done in Theme Park, was uh, not to clutter the screen with too much information. Now, the intention was to know who everyone was, what everyone was doing, where they were going, and how they were feeling, all kind of via graphics and icons and representations in the game world. Now, through the development process, and I will accept that as a developer I'm guilty of doing this myself, this was deemed acceptable because when they ran the game, they ran it in debug mode, which displayed a copious amount of statistics and information on the screen, which completely defeated the purpose of having a clean UI. When the game went into testing, however, debug mode was disabled, and it was quickly determined that the production mode visual feedback system without all the debugging information was not sufficient. Playtesters had no clue what to do, no clue how people were feeling, no clue what was what, and uh, they needed more information. So as a solution to this particular problem, they converted two-thirds of the bottom little bit of the screen into a context-sensitive head-up display, which would change depending on what the mouse was currently pointing at. So this allowed them to keep the nice large game viewport unobstructed while still displaying all the information that was required for you to play the game. So because of this massive recoding effort on the theme park base, development took much more effort than uh, was originally estimated. And I think also because they were, you know, basically repurposing the whole original code base, there were a lot more bugs than they had anticipated. Builds of the game took over eight minutes to complete. So by the end of the project, some of the developers were working over 16-hour days. One one of the developers has a story where he said he worked kind of a 16-hour day, left around one in the morning, went home to sleep for about 30 minutes on Saturday morning. And then after that 30 minutes, the QA team came back to get them in their car to bring him back to the office to fix a bug for another 16 hours and then finally have him go home and pass out. Now, that's not really a special or unique story from uh, from most game development houses. But, um, you know, you always kind of, I always find these things interesting, you know, how things work when things get down to the wire, who gets pulled out, who's in charge of what, where the bottlenecks are. I find that stuff very, very, very interesting. And, you know, I'm, again, guilty myself of, of uh, having to go and, and fix bugs at a weird time of night, you know, at the 11th hour before release. And um, it's not necessarily fun, but it makes for a great story afterwards. So the multiplayer that uh, I said was patched in after the release uh, was always intended to be in the game. However, because of this whole timeline thing, it had to be removed from uh, from the first production versions, but was quickly patched in, like I said. Now, the pace of development was so frantic that the team didn't actually realize uh, when they were even finished. So they would have, I don't know if they were weekly, but they would definitely had regular meetings, and the meetings would take place in the pub down by Bullfrog's office. Now, this is kind of a a thing that was probably started by Molyneux because I always hear stories about him spending a lot of time kind of brainstorming in the pub. So the team would get together in the pub and uh, they would track the status of the project. Now, one meeting, they all came down, said, okay, you know, what's going on? Sit at our regular places and okay, what's on the list? What do we got to do? And they looked down and everything was done. No one had realized it. So boom, hey, without them even realizing it, the game was done. Now, the timing of the game's release was lucky. It came out around Easter in 1997, and the only other major game releasing simultaneously at that time was uh, was MDK, which is a game I played, and I don't know if I enjoyed it a ton, but I should cover it. Um, so between that and Theme Hospital, 
Theme Hospital ended up coming out number one on the charts. The game's humor, graphics, and balanced gameplay made it a hit. It blew past EA's lackluster forecast of 50,000 lifetime sales and uh, was actually referenced in a joking manner in both the British Parliament and uh, a Daily Telegraph article as a quote-unquote sick computer game used by the British Medical Association to train senior management. As far as I can tell, uh, the game performed much better than anyone had anticipated and uh, did so both within schedule and on budget. Now, if that isn't the formula for a successful game, then I don't know what is. It's a testament to the team that built it, that they did this, and that many of them were still working together years later after a move to Lionhead. Perhaps being treated as a little bit of a black sheep project made the game even better, made the team even tighter. So as a result of this success, uh, the game was ported to many different platforms, including a few attempts at uh, open source clones, none of which have been incredibly successful. And uh, there's also a semi-legal Android version based on one of those open source projects that's available on the Google Play Store. Aside from this, though, I haven't come across any Kickstarters or other projects uh, trying to recreate the game in any official capacity. However, elements of this game have definitely trickled into the world of business and kind of pseudo-business simulations. Uh, Recently, I spent quite a bit of time playing uh, Prison Architect and uh, Space Base DF9 from Double Fine, which I can say some things about at this exact moment in time, but I won't get off on a tangent there. Uh, So in those two games, I, I noticed very readily the concept of rooms with specific roles and uh, requirements depending on staffing and equipment to make those rooms functional. That's a very important core concept in those games. Now, perhaps Theme Hospital didn't invent this mechanic, but I think it definitely put it on the map. It's definitely the game that I will think of moving forward as the first game to really leverage the define a room with a role, put appropriate things in it, and make the room work kind of thing. So where can we get Theme Hospital today? Well, finally, after a couple of weeks, we've got an easy one. It is available on GOG.com for $5.99 USD, and it works without an issue on my Win 8.1 machine. I think it also runs on Mac. I haven't tried it on my MacBook, but I'd be surprised if it didn't. Basically, all the uh, all the games that are deployed on GOG on DOSBox will run on Mac as well. So go grab it. All right, so before my verdict, let's see what you guys have to say about Theme Hospital in a couple of emails. First, an email from Chris, and he writes, Hi, Joe. I'm still very much enjoying the US, the UMB cast, so thank you for your continued work. There have been a few games I go back to every couple of years. Settlers 2, Dungeon Keeper, and finally, Theme Hospital. I first saw Theme Hospital in PC Zone, a UK gaming magazine, and without reading any details, I knew straight away I wanted to play it. At the time of its release, I did not have a PC capable of playing it, but managed to convince a friend to install the demo on his far superior PC. He wasn't so fussed, but I absolutely loved it. It was everything I had built up from the first few screenshots I had seen. One of the most pointlessly, question mark, noticeable things for me was the fact that the vending machines in the game featured a product from the real world, the Kit Kat chocolate bar. Nowadays, this is no big deal, but I can't recall a similar example of such a thing back in the day. Apparently, this was added 
because the developers received a large box of Kit Kats, I can't say I wouldn't do exactly the same thing if I were sent a box of them too. Anyway, back to the game. Even back then, Theme Hospital always felt like uh, a game that wasn't trying to do too much, but what it did, it did perfectly. The balance between complexity and accessibility was spot on. The subtle yet memorable music was never overbearing, yet always a pleasure to listen to, and the graphics were by no means groundbreaking, but the animations that went with them were always really fun to watch. The sound effects were plentiful, funny, and always matched the actions and general ambiance of the hospital. It's hard to put into words. Uh, the game was by no mo- the game was by no means a technological marvel, but it felt like it knew exactly what it was and was able to bundle all of the sound, graphics, interface, gameplay together like no game had managed before. I was never able to stop people complaining about the heating in the hospital, though it drove me nuts. Thanks again, and I very much look forward to this episode. And then he actually followed up with a correction. He writes, "Hi, Joe." The KitKat logo wasn't added because they received a box of them. They received a box of KitKats because they put the logo in. So it was actually the opposite of uh, of what he said. Now, I'm not from the UK, but I, I do understand that KitKats are a much bigger deal in the rest of the world than they are in North America. And I noticed that too. I thought it was funny. I also thought it was funny that it was a drinks machine that had a KitKat logo on it. Unless uh, KitKats are drinks somewhere else in the world. I'm pretty sure they're chocolate bars. But uh, I thought that was cool, too. And, you know, I'm still even trying to think realistically how much, aside from in sports games and racing games and, and things like that, how much product placement there are in in modern games. I'm sure there's a ton of it. I just can't think of many of them off the top of my head. So thanks for that, Chris. And um, let's go on to the next. Martin writes, hi, Joe. Since my last email on Jedi Knight, it's obviously got a bit crowded on the email front, so I'll do my utmost to keep this brief. As a youth, I played a metric ton of theme park, though never with much of an eye to achieving the goals of the level. It was all about unlocking all the rides, then making my customers puke from too much food and fast turns on my monster roller coasters for me. That probably says a lot about my approach to this type of game and possibly my personality in general. I'd read a preview of Theme Hospital by uh, by Charlie Brooker in PC Zone magazine in something like the summer of 96, which immediately told me I would be buying this one on release. Curing people from believing they were Elvis, invented surgical procedures from the theme park team, sold. When I got a hold of a copy, I wasn't disappointed. I found the game tickled loads of the same itches that Theme Park did, but and it was much more dark and subversive, which gave it all the more appeal. You can see that it was unsubtly poking fun at the U.S. health insurance system, putting you in the shoes of those gleefully profiting from the misfortune of their patients, and better still, making you enjoy it. It was devious and delightful. Much like its pixelated predecessor, I never had great success in actually progressing through the game. I was mostly content to build my hospitals and unlock all of the rooms, watch people go about their business, and then get utterly distracted by the playground nature of the game. Shooting rats, boxing handymen into prison constructed of benches, uh, radiators and vending machines, watching vomit waves take over the waiting area, stuff like that. Hearing that you were going to cover Theme Hospital sent me back to my GOG library to download it yet again. I think I bought it the day GOG announced macOS support, but I've yet to sit down for a proper session. I fully intend to give it a proper run-through soon, to try to actually finish the game, although it's now in a podcast-induced queue of retro games I've been inspired to replay. Cracking choice of game this week, enjoying the show every episode. Martin from York. Well, thank you, Martin. And um, yeah, I'm kind of a loser when it comes to these kinds of games. I don't do like even The Sims and stuff like that. I don't do all the... uh, 
lock your sim out of the bathroom and make him pee on the floor and stuff like that. But I can definitely see the appeal of being able to do things like that. I, I'm too much of a, Oh, there's goals. I have to, I have to complete the goals and, and beat the game. So I don't like, I don't sit there and, and play with the sandboxiness though. I probably should. And I think it would probably help me be a bit more creative in my life, but uh, thank you for that. Finally, we have an email from Alima. She writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Simulation games have always appealed to me for some reason. Maybe it's my OCD tendencies, but I grew up clicking away, organizing my base or city or farm, and trying to keep things running as smoothly as possible. I guess they have a very zen-like quality for me until disaster strikes. There were so many. Jones in the Fast Lane, Sim City, Sim Tower, Caesar 3, Sim Town, Pharaoh, Sim Farm, Theme Park on my cousin's Mega Drive or Gen and slash Genesis. Uh, I think this is going to be, I used to play this back in the day email. Not quite. Interestingly enough, I'd never heard of Theme Hospital when it first came out. I might have seen it on shelves at CompUSA, but if so, it left no impression. Fast forward a few years later, I'm in college, but somewhat ironically, med school. My my best friend recommends it, and trusting his judgment, I give it a try. Theme Hospital immediately captured my attention with its simple mechanics and, most importantly, zany sense of humor. As soon as you launch the intro, it's apparent. The Horned Reaper is waiting to be seen, the doctor swaggers in and shoves nurses out of his way, and the operating table's computer has a Populous 3 demo installed on it. It keeps going in the game itself. Dying patients either fly off into heaven, complete with wings and halo, or are greeted by a Reaper who dunks them into a pit of lava. The receptionist makes ludicrously silly announcements, terminal patients to the front of the queue, Patients are asked not to die in the corridors. We apologize for the amount of litter. Look out for other bullfrog products. The diseases and their cures take the cake, though. One of my favorite descriptions is that of slack tongue. Cause, chronic over-discussion of soap operas. Symptoms, tongue swells to five times its original length. Cure, the tongue is placed in the slicer machine and removed quickly, efficiently, and painfully. The animations for the slack tongue and bloaty head cures are also hilarious, and nothing can top someone coming in looking like Bigfoot and complaining of hairyitis. I quickly fell in love with the game and played it a lot. I truly had that game down to a science, cramming as many rooms as possible in my hospital and optimizing object placement so that the patients and doctors didn't have too far to walk. I put my patients' well-being above all else. I specialized handymen to improve efficiency and scrambled to replace machines at the slightest hint of an earthquake. Some reflexes I couldn't quite get rid of, however, and I winced at all the windows I placed. I had to keep my staff happy, but what about patient privacy and doctor-patient confidentiality? And those darn handymen kept wandering into water plants in the middle of a consult. And how ethical is it to cram eight patients in a big ward? The game did hammer home the importance of GPs, however. Needless to say, I picked this up on GOG a few years ago, and we'll play it every now and then. I started another game when you announced you'd cover it, and I'm already at level 10. In my opinion, it still holds up today. The mechanics are solid, and the concept is fun. The games are cartoonish, which means they age more gracefully. The team showed a lot of creativity in coming up with the diseases and cures, and the game just shines because of it. I definitely recommend it if you're a fan of simulation games. Of course, that's just me and my bias, so I can't wait to hear if you disagree, Joe. If anything, I'm looking forward to the dev story and tech focus. I'm particularly curious about the music Russell Shaw composed for the game. Can't wait for the show to come out, Emily slash Alima. Well, thank you, Alima. And, you know, that's, I've actually, I, I love it when I get emails like this. So, you know, you went to med school, you're in the medical profession. So, you know, obviously this isn't meant to be a realistic portrayal, like I've said many times, of, of you know, the medical 
industry, the medical process, the medical uh, space. But I think, you know, there's a lot of truth and humor and in satire and things like that. And it's interesting that you point out, you know, the game says, well, place a lot of windows because your staff and the patients like to have natural light because, you know, they're plants. (laughs) But then, you know, I don't know if I would want to be going to the doctor and, you know, having to get some kind of, you know, intimate exam. (laughs) standing in front of a big plate glass window despite the fact that you know it would be nice if the sun shone into the room so you know it's good to get those to get those perspectives on on these kinds of things that's why i like getting emails from pilots when we do flight sims and uh you know talk to people who are into urban planning when we do city building games and things like that so thank you so much for that insight imagine yourself strolling the streets of coruscant Leading a squadron of elite X-Wing pilots. Going toe-to-toe with the Dark Lord of the Sith. You can. All you have to do is crack open a book. And listen to the Star Wars Stacks podcast and book club. Each month, your hosts Joe, Chris, and Jen take you on a guided tour of the expanded universe. The hosts begin the reviews with a non-spoiler synopsis and analysis to help you decide whether it's worth a read before sounding a spoiler alert and delving into the story in great detail. Subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Find the Star Wars Stacks on Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, and SWStacksShow.com. The Star Wars Stacks Podcast and Book Club. It's fun. It's immersive. It's Star Wars. Okay, so... Does Theme Hospital hold up today? Yes, 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 and yes. This is an awesome game. Now, I'm sort of a fan of business simulations like this, and if you go and watch my playthrough, you'll see I have a pretty fun time with the game, uh, even though I don't necessarily always know what to do. But that's just not because I like business sims. There are good reasons for this. This game is quirky. It's fun. It's frantic. Uh, it was said on on the stream there, on the YouTube video, by someone... Uh, But, you know, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but the pacing of Theme Hospital is as close to perfect as you can get, in my opinion. It's just frantic enough to keep you constantly occupied without becoming overwhelming. This is a game that I can easily play for hours, as you can tell by my almost two-hour research video. You know, there's so many small details, managing the heating of your hospital, handling, you know, impending inspections, handling VIP visits... There's 23 different rooms to manage, and but you know there's a lot of stuff here, but it all happens within such a fun and controlled and well-modulated, if you want to say, framework that I can't do anything but recommend this game. And you know, as I do the write-ups for these shows, I usually try and listen to the soundtracks as much as possible. I kind of do that, you know, to get myself into the zone and and whatever. And I don't always do this, but this time I had it on almost a continuous loop for the four or five hours it takes me to prep this show. It's jovial, and no matter how many times you hear it, it just doesn't get annoying and it doesn't get repetitive. Play this game. I can't say a bad thing about it. Go to GOG and pick it up. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that's it. Thanks to everyone for listening and writing in as always. As I said, lately, I have been super excited about, you know, where to take the show and how to keep putting out quality shows, putting out the show on a 
better, more regular schedule than I have been and stuff like that. So, you know, keep on coming back, guys. It just uh, totally, totally energizes me. So next time, I'll be covering an interesting sci-fi adventure RPG set of games that I've never touched before and uh, that apparently have some bearing on some more modern games that I like. Uh, And this series is called Starflight. So, as always, send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. If you got something to say about Theme Hospital, you got something to say about Sierra, you got something to say about Starflight, I'm sure a lot of you do, uh, drop me a line. Voicemail, I haven't gotten one of those in a while. I love one. Uh, emails, anything you got. Thank you to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Anything you want him to do, he's a renaissance man, as I've said many times before. Uh, check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. I've been doing a lot more stuff there recently thanks to uh, my other DOS uh, gaming compatriots. And uh, you can follow me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash groups slash umbcast. I got to pay attention to that one a little more. Sometimes I let it languish a bit, but uh, if you love to post there, post there. And on YouTube, you can find my videos, my playthroughs, and uh, some other fun stuff at youtube.com slash umbcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me reviews. I love them. I get emails every month now. Thanks to... uh, Thanks to my friend Daniel J. Lewis over at the Audacity to Podcast. He has a great service called My Podcast Reviews that uh, lets me know whenever anyone makes new reviews. So I'm going to see it if you do it. So feel free. Five stars if you think I deserve it. But that's it. That's that. And I will see you all next time for Starflight here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.